So hello and welcome back to the second part of our discussion with Dr. Tom Ewell um, about his um, research into the intersection between racism and speciesism. If you missed the first part, um, I put a link below to, to the first part of our discussion. And I should say too that I, a lot of animal studies does not care about the lives of, of animals. Um, a lot of the mainstream animal studies conferences serve meat at their at their conferences. I mean, you know, I mean, they there was a period in black history in the early 20th century when it was only racist white men who were doing that history. Uh, it's where we got the idea of of the happy slave who sang his massa spiritual and brought him a mint julep and everything was great. And then the North came along and ruined it. That idea comes from historians who are writing in a period where racism is the norm. It wasn't until we get black studies departments in the 1960s where we start to see a revision of black history to tell the actual truth about what that looks like. Any animal studies effort that doesn't care about the equality of animals is that early racist version of black history. And it's understandable that it exists because that was the you know, in every historiography, you have a starting point and you and you move on from it. We're still at the starting point. I mean, this is a relatively new discipline. And so the fact that a lot of animal studies people do not buy into the equality of all animals is understandable, but it's incredibly frustrating. As somebody who came into this specifically to try to help animals, to see how many people in this field are just as callous towards animals as just the people in my department, you know, I mean, in, at my school, uh, in, in, in human history stuff is frustrating, but it's understandable. And so I think the, the goal of what we do should be a, to disseminate this knowledge, this research that we're studying to a broader public to write as jargon free as possible so that more people can know that we exist outside of our cloister, but also to very much work within that cloister to expose the speciesism inherent in animal studies so that we can get out of that early phase of our historiography and move into something more accurate. I would never trust a Ku Klux Klansman to tell me about Black history. And in the same way, I would never trust a non-vegan to tell me anything meaningful about animals. I just wouldn't do it for the same reason, because I've, I've studied too much about racist historiographies and how white people have written the history of black people. I mean, there's just no way to do that. And I know there are a lot of great scholars everybody loves. We all love Donna Haraway and everybody else. You know, they're all great. They're not vegans their opinion doesn't matter as much to me. They're, it's interesting. I mean, it's a nice thought experiment that they're doing, but if you kill animals, you can't write about them and have me respect what you're doing. I mean, it's just not a thing. I, I don't understand how that works in a lot of people's minds. It's a manifestation of the dog thing that uh, Chris was talking about earlier. And I think that's part of the role of a discipline in its early phases. You fight for how you want it to go. So not only are we disseminating information to the public and to students, but we're also kind of fighting for the soul of what that discipline is going to look like in the same way that we um, did the same thing for Black history in the 1960s. And does that mean that let's say veganism is the cure-all of everything. Of course not. Of course not. I think it's great to do that. I want everybody to be vegan. But even if everybody was vegan, our government in the United States would still subsidize the meat killing industry and still make sure that all the animals were still being killed. 
And that's not going away. So there are lots of fronts on which to fight. Um, and there are lots of things that need to change. But one of the baseline things we should accept as a discipline is the fact that if we're going to study animals, we should leave them alone. I mean, if that is not, if that is not the core ideology of what you're doing, why are you doing it? I mean, what are you doing? You know, if I was, if I was an overt, I mean, we all, especially white Southerners like myself, we all have inherent racial biases that we can't escape. I mean, they're, they're always going to be there in some form. I don't want to absolve myself of any racism. Certainly that's not the case. Nobody can do that. But if I were an overt racist, I wouldn't have chosen to do black history. If I were a Nazi sympathizer, I wouldn't write Holocaust history. If it just makes no sense to me that, that this is not a problem for wary dog food owners. It is not just a problem for random citizens shocked by you, Lynn. This is a problem for the very people who are our peers and academic colleagues. And I think that's a fight of all of them that we probably have the best chance with simply because they at least understand the issues and academics are willing to engage in a way that I think non-academics might not be, but it matters. I mean, speciesism is not just something out there. It's very much something in here. I know that we've talked several times uh, about the fact that there are these divisions already in, in a field that's so new like anthrozoology, and there are these divisions that we've had to have people who who qualify themselves as critical animal studies, um, saying that they focus more on the the um, you know animals, and whereas anthrozoologists might focus more on the humans, which I personally don't think is true. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about is that we do have this kind of responsibility for for creating the field that we want to see, like you mentioned. And one of the, the thought exercises that I do with my students. Uh, because I teach in an anthrozoology program, is to tell them that they really are writing, they're writing the history now. It's, it's up to them to decide what the field is going to become uh, as they are the future of the field. So I, I do think that it is disheartening that there are these divisions between human-animal studies, critical animal studies, anthrozoology, uh, anthropology, those of us that come from an anthropology uh, a program like Exeter that, that's very grounded in anthropology have a little bit different take on on animal studies uh, and one of the things that we've we've said repeatedly is that we we want to be anthrozoologists for animals as opposed to being people who simply study animals which i think is a very different i think that's right and and exeter has done a really good job i mean the exeter anthrozoology of symbiotic ethics is essentially making a critical animal studies argument in the the way that we typically understand critical animal studies that anthrozoology should be that, that the whole discipline should be that, that um, by saying, I mean, I get, I mean, I would consider myself in the critical animal studies camp, but at the same time, shouldn't have to, uh, because there shouldn't any, be anything to have to push back against. There shouldn't have to be another track for, for people um, uh, who do that. And I think, what the anthrozoology of symbiotic ethics group is doing correctly is reframing what we think about animal studies to say, no, no matter what you're doing, there is always going to be an ethical component. Because just like in my other field, there's no way to avoid the present realities of the history that you talk about. Whereas my colleagues who study the ancient Far East, there really is a disconnect. They can leave their classroom at the end of the day and not really think about that subject in their daily lives. They're no, they know that the history of the ancient Far East is not going to come up on the news at night. I can't do that because even though I'm talking about people who have been dead for a long time, their shadow is on TV every single day. And the same thing is true for this. And if we frame anthrozoology as something that 
even if it's not kind of going to the advocacy place that all critical animal studies is, but is acknowledging the ethical component of everything that we do, which inherently argues for the worth of animals, then I think that is the best way to go about kind of spreading that attitude. Because we don't need, and certainly probably don't want, everybody who does animal studies to be an advocate. I mean, in critical animal studies, it's really about advocacy. You don't need to be advocating anything um, to have the ethical base that makes your studies legitimate. I mean, I'm an historian. Historians are not, historically speaking, advocates. I mean, we write about dead people. We try not to draw conclusions about the present. We try not to do presentism stuff. We try not to let that influence our interpretation of the past. I mean, we have a lot of kind of weird hangups around that kind of thing. I would not consider myself uh, an advocate scholar necessarily. But, and we don't need it. We don't need that all the time. I write about dead people. But what we do need is an ethical, an ethical acknowledgement that if you don't think of animals, non-human animals as functional equivalents, as, as people worthy of life, then, then your study about how dogs make people feel better doesn't really matter to me, you know? So. I do think it's important though to uh, and again, this is a conversation I have with my students to to not focus so strongly on the the vegan veganism as as the the outcome. We need to be welcoming to people who are undergoing that struggle right now. We need to welcome in people who are interested in animals. Welcome in people who want to study human animal relations um, without saying if you're coming into this field, you must be a vegan. Um, I think we, it's very important to keep, keep the doors open. Um, just like, just, just oh, so that we course. can spread the message. Yeah. Of course. Uh, because again, veganism isn't the cure-all, uh, for eating animals. And again, it's because we are all swimming in that particular water. And part of, I think what animal studies does is point out the water to people. And, and so, or that's what our role should be is to point out the water of species that is all around us. And until you're in it, you don't, you don't necessarily see it. And so, so yeah, come on, everybody come on and, and let's find the water together. The, the the issue, though, I think, is that, um, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll stop there for the moment. Tom, just following on from, from that bit, I mean, for me, um, the, when, uh, obviously, I was brought up a meat eater by, because that was the way things were. When you oh, realise what water you're swimming in, for me, it very, it very much felt like the um, taking the red pill in the matrix, seeing that you're actually, you know, on the battery, on the machine, you're part of the whole thing going, yeah, you know, and you are not in reality. And once you see what reality is, you have to make a decision. Do you want to be in that game where everything's nice and good and happy and you can carry on with your life and ignore what you don't want to know and have your palate pleasures daily, et cetera? Or do you, or do you say, right, I actually that's horrifying. I want to do something about it. And you have to make a decision. And it does take time, I think, Michelle, for people to go from, from, um, you know, realizing being totally overwhelmed by it and then either staying overwhelmed and, and, and shutting, you know, shutting down the shutters or kind of like deciding to move out of that. And that, that transition process takes time. I mean, it, it took me time. It, you have to, you know, you have to, sure. anyway, move forward, which at some point, Dog veganism will is is a process I'm now going through. Anyway, um, but what it made me think of was uh, several threads throughout your chapter. You talk about the assumption of edibility, and you talk about the um, 
and you've talked about dogs in one country might be uh, eaten as food and on the other hand might not be. You talk about the justification for the assumption of edibility. Religion is one of the, the things that you pick out. Um, and then you talk about the use of imagery and the characterization or the caricaturization of animals which and people, which then leads to justification of how they're actually then treated. But something interesting for me, for my research, is that I'm wanting to see if imagery can change the perspectives of people, the way that they view sharks, for example. And you talk about Barth and his, um, his punctum, his idea that an image can pierce the way that you then, um, your perception of, of whatever you're looking at. Um, and I wanted to know if, so, so the I. So often this piercing is used in trying to get people's perceptions of non-human animals and the way we use them changed by showing horrific images because, because that does shock some people into changing their, their perception and their behavior, but sometimes it brings down the shutter. So I want, so one line of thought that I'm going down, well, the main line of thought is that I want to show how sharks are actually, um, uh, how how that, that what the the relationship between shark listeners and sharks is, which is actually about the 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 other side of her, her of horrific imagery, which is about how they are in effect for for the shortened version of this, become a companion animal, if you like, that it not a non captive companion animal, but um, an animal that has has agents. Maybe that's the wrong word, but an animal that has agents. So they become friends. They become interlocutors. They become that the animal, they, the shark has the ability to come in and interact with the human. The human um, doesn't force them. Anyway, this is all the thing I've got to pretty much write about. But I'm trying to use the imagery of um, something that is pleasant to see if then somebody changes their mind about perception. So from, say very simply, from Jaws to um, an animal that is is actually or non-human animal that is then look it's not this stereotypical view that you've got so I was wondering if you had found in your work you use I'm looking at the image of the the, the pigs which are cool they've got the sunglasses on one is surfing on a hot dog and it may you know it made me think something else as well but um come back to that later but have you actually come across any imagery specifically or especially with with pigs where you found people have changed their attitudes because they're in this kind of like this gentle relationship with a with with a pig a human a pig human relationship where where they have this gentle side i know you have a pig yourself as a as a speak a family member um have you found that have you found that that has actually changed people's perspectives in terms of imagery? Maybe not necessarily people you're close to and have met your pigs on a on a personal level. Probably not imagery, um, but coming over and meeting the pigs has changed a lot of people's minds because most people have never uh, met pigs before, much less pigs in a house. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I think it helps to to see, to know animals uh, in a very visceral way, uh, whether it be through actual imagery or through actual contact. Uh, I, you know, I think the shark thing is important that you bring up. I mean, the thing I think about when I think about sharks is the word infest. Um, it's so often that we talk about shark infested waters and you just want to say, no, asshole, they live in the water. Humans are infesting the ocean. I mean, it's, it's, this is human infested beach, you know, it's not shark infested water. Um, and that the way we use words, the way we invert actuality um, ends up kind of defining everything we think about sharks. Um, and the same thing is true for pigs with the, the images that you're talking about. I mean, what we're essentially doing is inverting the actual way of thinking so that people can assume that these, that these particular waters are shark infested, 
when really there's just just water where sharks live. Um, so um, it is it is two sides of the same coin, uh, one being images and one being uh, linguistic, but we're doing the same thing, right? We're, ju we're just sim symbolizing uh, various modes of being so that um, humans can say it themselves and ensure that they are going to be the good guys in any narrative that they tell. I feel like if the reverse imagery were effective, then after Babe, the movie Babe came out, Right. We would have seen a serious drop in pork consumption. And as far as I know, that was not the case. So I think it's, you know, of course, that's one one movie, right. which was also very specious because, of course, the sheep were the sheep were st stupid and, you know, had no, to be right. controlled. And yeah, but but that's one would think that with how beloved yeah. that movie became, you would think that that would have had an impact. I'd be curious to see if they've done any studies on whether children who who love the movie Babe. What'd you say? Linda would know. That's true. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there, yeah, Linda, Linda would probably know. I mean, the, you know, there are other cartoons like Peppa and, and other thing else that kind of put pigs in people's minds. You know, it's interesting the, the the guy, the main guy in that movie, babe, he did go vegan and he became yeah. an animal advocate Yeah, because he had to be around the actual pig for filming. Whereas, uh, most people watching on TV, uh, on TV or on, on the big screen could, could separate themselves from the action uh, in the way that once you go watch a serial killer movie, after you leave the theater, you're not necessarily, while you're there in the moment, you're scared of the serial killer, but after you leave, you're, you're, you're not so much anymore. But I mean, these days, there are more and more of those efforts. Akja was another recent version of, uh, you know, kind of babe that, that, that made quite a stir uh with pig rights or pig whatever pig sentience and um so these things do happen but again as i mentioned in the beginning i think the vast majority of contact people have with pigs is not in babe or akja or any of or peppa or any of those things where pigs are front and centered it's in those it's in those daily interactions where they have a dead pig on their plate it's when people use pig as an insult for somebody who is sexist or somebody who was a cop and automatically pigs are associated with something that is bad it is it is in those daily interactions it is when they see a farm on television and it looks happy when there is no such thing. Uh, it is, it is, it is those kinds of things where people aren't in direct contact about a certain animal, but those images, those words, those assumptions just get drilled into your head and it conditions you for whatever you're going to end up actually thinking when you go to the theater to see it. I was, I've been shocked lately. My, I have a grandson who just turned two, who loves books, loves animals, uh, loves going to a, there's a rescue, a farm animal rescue near him that he loves going to. And just as we're reading books and I'm pulling out books from when my children were young, I am just shocked at the human exceptionalism in these children's books. And, and like you said, the water that they swim in, is just, uh, I am horrified occasionally and have to lose the books. Uh, <laughs> so that we're not reinforcing those stereotypes, but it is almost impossible. I mean, if you, you have to go out on Amazon and search, you know, vegan children's books, or, I mean, you really have to search for these. They're not mainstream items. And it is, it is it's, difficult. It's, it's interesting. And, you know, those, those stereotypes did not start out to demean animals. It was people looking at traits of animals and using them to demean humans. But it ends up in the process going back and hurting the animals more because the human, whether or not you're gonna call him a pig or not, his life isn't on the line. His, his pride is. Uh, uh, but the pig um, becomes more vulnerable and ultimately uh, loses his life. So. I mean, there is a real stakes game here um, 
for the animals being caricatured, even though those caricatures tended to develop as a way to hurt the feelings of other humans. It actually makes me think of a book that he has. That's There's a series that's, uh, they're touch and feel books that have like little pokies and and uh, one of them I really like is you must never touch a shark. Uh, but the, actually the, the underlying message of the whole book is that you shouldn't be touching animals. You're allowed to look at animals and, um, you know, wave hello is what it says. And, but you should not ever touch them. And though it's, that's not the, you know, the, the cool part of the book is that it's got these, these textures, but the underlying message is, you know, it's important not to harass animals, which I find very interesting because I'm not sure that was the point of the book as it was written, but it, uh, it serves to reinforce. I like it. That should, yeah. that should be what we should, uh, uh aspire to, mm-hmm. uh, just leave them the hell alone. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've tried to work with him on, uh, cause I think a lot about consent. Um, and when I was doing my research, I, I asked my elephant persons for consent. Uh, and so I, I try to work with him on, you know, you, you ask, an animal if you're going to interact with it you know these animals on the rescue farm they might not be interested in interacting when some are you know and and to work on that patience from a very young age of, of waiting just like you would with a human waiting to see if that human approaches you right um, sorry i wanted to ask you um sorry for interrupting there um i was interested I was again the, the the cool imagery of the of the pigs i was interested in your idea I, the, when you were saying about uh um the pigs were shown as uh, being rich people so the idea was eating the um eating the image um well the, this is where i got it for it. eating the image makes you cool and rich you kind of like the, the, that image is then transposed onto you um you, you feel that you're in that kind of like zone and you're thinking oh, i'm eating this pig and that's the, the message that the, the restaurant's given um, and also the cool, the, the pigs that are cool. Um, I don't know if anybody's done any studies of specific pe- kind of people going to these different restaurants that are given these different messages. But it did make me think of, um, and I had to look up some words here, which I might have very wrong, but it made me think of um, the um, ancient cultures where people used to eat, for example, the heart of their enemy, or they used to eat specific animals or people which would then imbibe with them, uh, the, the, the eater, with um, that feeling that they assumed that the animal or the person had, or it would make them stronger. Um, is, there, is there a word for that? And and is it something that you have kind of thought about with this kind of imagery? Oh yeah, there's a word for it. You are what you eat. I mean, we still very much think about it. I mean, I mean, that idea is still very much with us. You are what you eat. Um, uh, and throughout, I mean, uh, alongside animal studies is the burgeoning field of food studies. Um, uh, which is very popular, which I hate obviously because they treat people's killing of animals as cultural phenomena that don't matter to animals. Uh, but, um, you know, they would argue that the, those people would argue that the reason why people choose what they do to eat is very much is culturally coded, that, that you are making those choices um, partially out of necessity, partially out of hunger, but partially uh, and maybe even mostly out of self-identification uh you know you you choose your food based on your conception of self and your place in a various on a certain in-group so um even if you could theoretically afford afford caviar for example you would need it uh because that's associated with rich people and rich people suck or uh, or I'm too good for the store brand, or uh, or I prefer one fast food restaurant over another. I'm loyal to to, to one or the other, even though it's, they're serving basically the same dead animal. So, um, uh, 
all of this stuff is, is very much conditioned by how we think of ourselves. And if that's the case, then marketing both for packaged food and for restaurants is always going to be coded towards making sure that you feel comfortable uh, in the particular group that is purchasers of this product. Um, and that means making sure you don't think anything bad happens in the end. Um, there are three phase, at least three terms in um, in your chapter, which, if you wouldn't mind explaining a bit more, um, two are to do with anthropomorphism, trivial anthropomorphism and deflective anthropomorphism, and also fugitive, fugitive humanism. Okay, um, I don't remember uh, what the context was in which I used those exactly, okay. um, but so. Um, Anthropomorphism comes in a variety of different ways. I mean, trivial anthropomorphism is one that doesn't really have any negative effect for animals. It, it's just part of the way we do it. I mean, I, nobody, nobody puts, well, I shouldn't say that because that actually, that actually isn't true. Let me give a better example. Um, Shall I give you the context? Yeah, give me some so, time. Um, you basically say trivial anthropomorphism, by contrast, treats animals as though they were people without making any effort to relay ethical principles. And you're talking about John Simon's uh, right. referring to three little pigs. Yeah, I say that, but at the same time, there are problems. And that's the first thing I went to was Disney. Thing about Mickey Mouse, and Mickey Mouse didn't encourage people to kill mice, but it ended up actually encouraging people to kill mice because it ended up creating a, a, the mouse as a pet phenomenon, uh, which inevitably put some mice in danger. So maybe that wasn't even totally trivial. And as we end up seeing the use of the three little pigs ends up doing some harm along the way with the, the Disney imagery, um, uh, justifying pigs as sausage to little kids. Uh, so the point of using the concept of trivial anthropomorphism is to talk about intent. The idea uh, is that some anthropomorphism is specifically designed to hurt animals. The anthropomorphism, for example, that are on those barbecue sites. Um, others are not intentional. Now, I think the basic argument of everybody who talks about anthropomorphism is that it is inherently dangerous no matter what you're doing. But what we're talking about here is intent claims based on uh, the motives of the people who are anthropomorphizing. Um, there are uh, plenty, you, you mentioned Douglas Adams earlier, there are plenty of talking animals in Douglas Adams novels, uh, that is trivial anthropomorphism. I mean, nobody is um, going to go and um, hurt animals based on that. He's just creating characters. Can that have a negative effect? Absolutely, um, or a positive effect in in some regards. There are plenty of there are plenty of animal sanctuaries who use uh, animal anthropomorphized animals as a logo. Um, and more power to them, uh, because if you're a sanctuary, I'm, I'm all for you, do, you doing whatever you want to do. Um, but it's really a talk about intentionality. Okay. And, and deflective anthropomorphism. Deflective anthropomorphism is easier to describe. I mean, deflective anthropomorphism is a way to try to convince ourselves that what we're doing to animals isn't wrong. Um, and so we can deflect by saying that, well, the animals are happy. We can create uh, positive images. We can have commercials of milk commercials of happy cows uh, that are, are living their best life and just love being milk cows, um, which we know isn't true. Uh, but we are specifically deflecting uh, the kind of cruelty by trying to cover it up by using anthropomorphism as a salve against what we do to, to other animals. So that's like your happy hens paper then, Chris. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of that happy yeah. hens. Yeah. I, I was thinking that the most disturbing example of that uh, in the images that you used in your paper, Tom, was of the 
kind of the chef looking pig dressed like he's going to do the butchering or eating himself almost as though because he's happy killing and consuming his own kind it must be okay then for others to do so right yeah so that one's not great then there's also a series of images uh of pigs uh, at the table uh, assumingly about to eat uh, uh, other pigs. Um, uh, there are pigs who are being cooked and smiling. Uh, there are lots of kind of weird ways that we kind of formulate um, these images. None of them associated in general minds with the grotesque in any way. I mean, they're there to sell a product. They don't want to be associated with that. And so what that tells us is, is that as as disturbing as those images might be, um, they are not disturbing to most people. Otherwise they wouldn't be signs. Otherwise those businesses wouldn't have survived for me to take a picture of it. Um, so, there is a generic acceptance there. And that is part of the deflection that exists is that um, it makes the grotesque mundane. You know, I mean, the, the, the worst trick the devil ever, devil ever pulled was making you think he didn't exist, right? I mean, so, I mean, that's that's what's going on here uh, is, is kind of when you make the grotesque mundane, you can get away with anything. And there are a lot of lies on the line because of it. And you, you talk as well about the use of words and how um, African-Americans are, are fought against certain words that have been used to speak about themselves or right. white people speak about themselves. And they've, they've pushed for the change and there has been change. And then you make the, the point about um, non-human animals actually becoming a non-entity at some, some point. And they're unable to access language and metaphor. They're unable to actually even ask for themselves to be to be addressed in a different way. And then you go on to mention genocide, which you said is actually an, a, 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 not the word that you're that we're looking for because it's not to exterminate. And also the word slavery, which you mentioned before, um, could have problems being used uh, in comparison to, to to people groups of people. Are there, are there words that exist that could be used instead of genocide or slavery then? Or should we be thinking of words to create those gaps, to fill those gaps, sorry, to discuss these things? I don't, I don't know. I go back and forth on it. I, you know, I don't, I don't have a good answer. Um, right. I mean, we have... There is a running debate about whether or not American slavery was a genocide. And the argument against the argument against that it was a genocide is that it wasn't extermination. Uh, that that the point of it was to keep workers in perpetuity. And so therefore you wanted people alive. Even though it killed millions of people, and even though it was based in the same kind of ethnic cleansing that we task most genocides with. And so there is this debate about whether that counts as a genocide or whether the continued white supremacy uh, post-slavery in the United States constitutes an elaboration on that original genocide. And I tend to make the case that as abhorrent as all of this is, that it's not a genocide because it wasn't elimination. At the same time, when it comes to animals, I tend to call this a genocide uh, because, because I like to contradict myself a lot. And, and I don't know. I, um, a couple of years ago, I was at the, doing a program at the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, and we were having a big genocide thing for a couple of weeks comparing slavery, comparing Jim Crow and the Holocaust. And I was, of course, coming from the Jim Crow side and other scholars were coming from the Holocaust side. And we had this this thing for a few weeks. And I tried to sell them on the idea that if we're talking about genocides, 
we have to include animals uh, as being victims of that as well. They didn't go for it. Um, because? Because genocide is functionally cultural and therefore functionally human. And so, so it doesn't count. It's something different. And maybe it is something different. I don't know what the best word to use is, but I do know that in my head, non-eliminationist genocide is the way I think about it. And whether or not that works publicly, I think thinking about it in that way, whatever the term you use, helps make you more attuned to the plight of animals when you are studying them. Um, because, I mean, so, for example, it's one thing to write um, a history book about slavery today. It's another thing to be writing an op-ed in a newspaper in 1859 about whether or not we should go to war to end slavery. And no matter what kind of work we're doing, considering the way animals are treated around us every single day, we are all in the op-ed business. We are all writing in the belly of the beast. It is happening all around us right now. And I think too many times um, uh, the work that we do is not responsive to the real plight uh, that animals face on a daily basis. And if we lived in the American South in 1859, I think all of us would like to think that we would use our scholarship first and foremost, more than anything else, to end that practice. And yes, we could also at the same time write interesting articles about successful free black enterprises in the North or a successful immigration attempt for 10,000 people to Liberia. And we could do things like that. But the core of what we were doing, the core of what we were writing would be towards the elimination of the slave system that we were surrounded by. Today, we are surrounded by an even more deadly system. And yet the vast majority of animal studies scholarship doesn't really touch it. Um, it kind of exists in a, in a kind of this, this hermetic world where where that isn't the overarching reality. And it's fine to talk about other things than just factory farming, but, but that's the story of animals. And the story of animals is humans killing. I mean, that is the story of animals. And there are other interesting stories to be told. But by thinking about some version of non-eliminationist genocide as you're doing whatever work you're doing, it helps to ensure that whatever that work is acknowledges that the state of human-animal relations is one of abject horror. I mean, human-animal, there is only one way to study human-animal studies, and that is horror. Because one side of that is a perpetrator and one side of that is a victim and that is all there is to it. 
And yes, dogs can make people happy in a pandemic. And yes, uh, they'll come when you call if you give them a certain treat or whatever else animal studies people do while they're eating other animals. But the state of human-animal relations is the most horrifying thing that has ever existed on the planet at any time ever since the advent of factory farming in the post-World War II period. At any time, more beings die today than will ever die any other day in the history of the globe before today. It increases every single day. And if we live and think about our research and think about our daily lives when we see these symbols everywhere that we go, that today will be the deadliest day in global history. Because every day you wake up, it will be that for animals. Then I think it helps condition us to, to gear our scholarship towards making that stop even if realistically we know that it's not going to happen. And it's overwhelming because when you're trying to write a paper and it takes you a month to write it and then somebody else looks at it and they have to write it again and it's so slow and then is anybody even going to read it and your family aren't really interested anyway and only, so true. only if like 50 people maybe around the world globally even when I listen to this podcast it's like ah you know no you're right I mean and again yeah, yeah I, I have that crisis of faith too. You know, yeah. is is this does this even help the animals? Because if it doesn't, I don't care. I mean, my goal is to help the animals. This just happens to be what I'm good at, so I do it. But I, I don't know if it helps. But I mean, I ask myself that every day. How did you help the animals? Today? We have to try, don't we? It, yeah. it's, it's about the effort. It's about the effort. Of course, if everything changed tomorrow. That'd be brilliant. But if you don't make the effort, you're complicit. I think. Right. It's frustrating though that all the funding it's and, and if you want a career doing this, you all the money is in the dogs make you happy. Right. That, that's where the, the funding is, that's where the jobs are. And you're in this sort of catch twenty-two situation if you want to get in, you want to get a position, and then you can study what you feel matters most. And yeah, I, I really don't know how that can sort of be changed where there is more funding for um for animals or for, for amphizoologists that want to help the animals rather than help right it changes once we start to get more programs i think the problem we have in our discipline now is that it's top heavy we have a lot of research coming out we have a lot of books we have a lot of articles we have a lot of this but knowledge is generated at the academy in two ways in one sense it goes up that we write research and send it out into the world for other people to see. In the other sense, it goes down to students who come to the university. And we the, the amount of published research versus the number of programs in universities that actually exist is vastly different. And so what we need are more programs. What we need is to start teaching students this stuff at the undergraduate level as part of the curriculum in colleges, create more departments, which ends up creating more specialties, which ends up leaving places in those departments uh, for the kind of broad swath of the way people think about uh, animal studies and what it should be. In the same way that I am in a history department, but I am not qualified to teach Latin American history because I don't know it. Um, the same way is kind of what you end up wanting for an animal studies department where you have people with different competencies in different areas who teach different things. And until we have kind of a general acceptance among the university systems that this is a field that needs to be part of the university, we're going to maintain that top heavy level where anybody can write something, but it's much harder to be in a department to acknowledge everybody's differences and to teach a, a kind of broad-based curriculum to, to students. That's where we create those jobs. That's where we allow people space to, to be their own individual things. And so I think one of the main things that 
we should be doing in the kind of the generic infancy uh, of the discipline is not just writing more books, but in creating more programs, uh, because that's where we make space for scholarship. Um, that's where we create the next generation of scholarship. So well, I think part of the problem is that when you're writing in academia, you know, you're writing for other academics and people without institutional access to journals don't ever see what gets produced. And so that's why I think things like like this podcast um, are so important in in reaching non-academics so that we can start the conversation outside of academia, because outside of academia is where the problem is going to get solved. Right. And even when there is access, I think animal studies includes basically every single department at the university. You know, animals can be interpreted from pretty much any discipline. And so the number of disciplinary frameworks that we have, um, the amount of jargon and turf stuff that goes into a lot of that um, means that even if you were inclined to learn about these things and you did know where to find it, um, it wouldn't be fun to read uh, because, you know, uh, we all talk in such a different way. And I mean, historians are trained to write for the public. I mean, you know, we, we write stuff that is accessible because, um, I mean, there's a reason why fiction is the, 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 the largest section in the bookstore, but history is the next largest section because it is something that is consumed by the, pop, by the public. And so many other disciplines I've noticed within animal studies, they don't write like that. They write um, in jargony kind of academic -y ways that don't make you want to read it. And we need, we need eventually, not anytime soon, but eventually we need our own set of standards agreed upon for the discipline um, about no matter what department you come from, we encourage all departments but we have this way of kind of framing or at least kind of a roadmap for this is how we, how we talk about certain things. That way we can create some kind of uniformity that gives people an easier roadmap to find not only our work, but the work of others that follows along a very clear path because history is great, but historiography is more important. I mean, it is, it is kind of, we need to be able to track the history of the discipline and the flow of information, regardless of what department somebody writing in is coming from. We don't have that yet, which is understandable. I mean, with only like 30, 40 years in, and it's understandable that it's relatively new discipline. Things are, you know, things take time, but, um, but that's where we're going to end up needing to go. And that starts again with, with, creating positions, Chris, I mean, at universities to, to give people those kind of academic homes to uh, allow them the freedom to write what they want, but also just to teach more people about this. I mean, I think it matters that, that I am an academic who has had relative success in this business for a relatively long time. And I didn't even know animal studies was a thing until a few years ago, you know? Now, granted, history is usually not one of the main fields included in animal studies. History lags behind everybody else in inclusion, anthropology, sociology, psychology, do, away, do it way more. History is usually last of the party in everything. But I didn't know it existed, you know, and I was so glad when I found out, but that matters. How did you find out? Did you search or somebody tell you? I don't, I searched, I think I searched, I don't know. I mean, I was having a real crisis of faith because I, you know, I have been fortunate enough in, in, in my business to have written some things that have made a difference, that have helped change laws and to do things like that. And it got me thinking that maybe I could do that for animals, but I didn't know how to go about that. I knew it, I didn't think it was an academic possibility 
uh, and so, yeah, I went, I went looking, I, I wanted to, to teach animals at my school. I didn't know how, um, I wasn't credentialed. So I ended up taking, uh, a class, uh, online at Harvard with Paul Waldau, um, and learned all about it. Um, and that ended up leading me eventually to Exeter. So um, people shouldn't have to go searching like that, though. I mean, when you go to school, even if you don't know what you want to do, you know that the history department exists and that theoretically that could be something that you do. I mean, the goal should be that even if you're not interested in animal studies, that you know that if you're going to school, you'll be able to at least take it if you want. And we're, of course, obviously not even close to that yet. But I mean, that should be the ultimate goal. Yeah, well, Anthers, Anthers, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, was say, I, I also, I had no idea. And I stumbled across amphizoology and um, and then like hooked me. I'm like, wow, I wish I'd known about this 20 years ago. And and eventually I I, I, I pursued it um, academically and, and now I'm, I'm doing my PhD. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it seems something that's popular with students, with undergrads, when they hear about it, the Exeter program, I think it grows each year that the master's program um, and similar courses, I guess, Michelle, you, you have plenty of students wanting to, to join. So it's, it's like, it's, it's popular young, or say young or early career people want mm -hmm. to pursue this, this field. Well, and it's like, why is it not more mainstream? Why, why are more universities not offering this? I, right. I teach at uh, Beacon College in, in Leesburg, Florida, and we are the fastest growing major at the college, anthrozoology. I mean, it's, it's something that sparks people's interest. I think just like you said, Chris, and Tom said, and I know my own history, people are, are surprised when they find it. Oh, my goodness, this is actually a discipline I can go into. It's something I can, I can make a career of. It's something that I can, I can do for a living. And then it also allows you to go your own direction. If you're, you're studying uh, animal sheltering and rescue, if you're studying law, if you're studying history, I mean, you can go so many different directions with it. And I think that's why it's such a popular and quickly growing field in, in undergraduate studies as well. And we do definitely need more programs. It also gives those students the tools to go find that research that you worry that nobody will ever find. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it ends up having this kind of domino effect that once you know that this option is available to you, not only do you learn about those things, but you kind of get the gateway into kind of taking it further on your own, which ends up making better research in the long run. I mean, but we really have started with a top-down approach in this field, and we need to spend more time creating programs and, and building that kind of academic infrastructure so that we can create more of these students and um, ensure that the future is better than the present. So Tom, you said you wanted to do this because you want to help animals. So what are your plans then? How have you got thoughts on how you're going to proceed? Are you writing a book next about it? Or are you going out and doing interviews or? Yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to publish this book. I don't, I don't know where yet, but I'm going to do that. Now I'm working on some other stuff. I've been writing a little bit about representation of animals in uh, film and literature that doesn't, that technically don't have anything to do with animals um, to kind of show how that works. I've also, I'm also messing around right now with, um, some abortion stuff because I think species hides in plain sight in abortion debates um, because of the emphasis on human life and the way humanity is the either the justification or the denial of whether or not that's a good idea. Um, so I'm playing around with species and abortion right now. Um, but my ultimate goal after that is to work on a on a, a historical study of how we got factory farming through the deregulation process and through the subsidy process at the Department of Agriculture. Because 
I think most of the time we talk about the horrible present outgrowths of animal ag. Um, but histories of the process of how our government played a role in making sure that happened don't really exist in any kind of detailed way. And I think uh, I'm somebody who has the tools to be able to do that. And I, and I, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to show how this happened um, so that people can, can see. Yeah. That's the ultimate goal. The next couple of projects, at least. And saying thank you, Tom. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to, to reading, reading your book and your, your unwritten books, too. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very thank much. You, Chris. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs>